Well, as we turn again to the Gospel of Luke, we have been in a series to know and follow Jesus. And sometimes the emphasis of the text before us is, is more of a focus on knowing him. Sometimes it's more on following. There's very clear things that we should step into, things where we can live into our faith. But you can't live into that faith if you don't first know. Not only know about him, but knowing him. And we have been getting to know our Lord, our Savior, Jesus, and knowing our God through him as we've been in the Gospel of Luke together. We, we, we know him not only from what he, we see and what he says, but what he does, and also how he faces the circumstances that he enters into. Circumstances that at times, in some way, might parallel some of the things that might also occur with us. And so, even at this stage in the Gospel of Luke, those things that we can learn to know and to follow Jesus. In the, in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, the opening book, the, the prophet Habakkuk, almost 600 years before Luke chapter 23, is very concerned. He's very disturbed. He's looking around them at, at um, what's supposed to be God's city, the center of God's people and their worship of him. And this is what he sees. This is what he describes. He says in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence that he sees around him and you will not save? Why do you Make me to see iniquity, and why do you seem to idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, and justice goes forth perverted, twisted. Habakkuk looked around at his day and he says, things are not right here. You know, we sometimes have this expectation that we would live in a, Christian, a Christianized kind of a society and culture until Jesus came for us. Or maybe, yeah, the Bible talks about in the end times, difficult times will come. And so maybe at the very end it'll get a little worse just before the rapture. But we, we, we expected things to be better than sometimes they are. And we wonder when things aren't the way they're supposed to be, God, where are you? God, why are you allowing this? Don't you know? Can't you do something? Don't you care? What is going on? And the problem with that expectation is that Jesus gave us no such promise. In fact, Jesus says in this world you will have tribulation. Paul warns Timothy as he's beginning his ministry, he says that those who live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer persecution. That's the promise that has been laid out for us. And yet that which we should expect to actually be our norm, we find that Jesus first has already walked there. He, Hebrews says, is the author and finisher of our faith. Another way to understand that phrase is he is the one who has gone before us. And he also brings us along. So he, he leads the way, he blazes the trail, and he carries us along with him. He's already gone into the opposition, the worst of it, even as we're going to see. 
in this passage just before us. So I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 23, really the end of chapter 22, and we're going to be looking at the trials of Jesus. I don't particularly mean certain troubles, but I mean the actual legal trials, the charges that are laid against him, him standing in the judgment dock, the verdict being given. As Jesus stands before the Jewish Sanhedrin and then the Roman governor Pilate and also Herod Antipas along the way, we're going to look at the trials of Jesus and a circumstance that we ourselves will never exactly face because he faced it for us. But there's something certainly that we can learn from this in the midst of the opposition that we will at times face, we should in fact expect to face. And in the midst of that, we're going to find that the operative question always is, who do you say that I am? We sang, we sang already, I am who you say I am, but that's only, that only matters, that only gives us any great confidence because that's entered into on the basis of who do we say that he is. And that's a question that's going to continue before these different groups as we proceed from the end of chapter 22 and into chapter 23. First of all, one of the things we're going to see, right off that, we're going to see that some know the truth, but don't want the truth. It's not always a matter of, oh, but if they only knew. God, why don't they know? What if they know the truth, but they don't want the truth? Look at the end of Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is this that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Now, these, are them, these are those that are holding him in custody after he's initially been arrested at the betrayal of Judas. He's taken back to the um, power behind the high priesthood, a man named Annas, who used to be the high priest, got fired by the Romans, but he's still pulling the strings. His son-in-law has the office now, but he still is in control. They bring him to his house first, then they'll go to Caiaphas's, and uh, then they will come before a council in the next morning. So it seems in between those two Jewish interrogations, there is this mocking and beating going on. And then verse 66, when day came, the assembly of the Jews of the people, the assembly of the elders of the people, sorry, gathered together both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. But, Jesus said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, he gives them more than they bargained for here. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Some know the truth, but don't want the truth. I can't help, as I read this section, remember those much earlier words from Nicodemus when he meets Jesus in John chapter 3 at night, where he says, we know. And Nicodemus is one of the leading Pharisees on the Sanhedrin. And he says, we know that you are a teacher sent from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. They know. They know. That's the dirty little secret here. 
And they seem to say the quiet part out loud in some ways him. First of all, they're, they're mocking him. They, 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 they say, prophesy. Who is the struck him? One strikes him and they say, identify. Who was it? Another hits him. He's blindfolded. They're, they're making a mockery of any claim for this man, Jesus, to be a prophet. Do you remember Luke chapter 7, verse 39? Remember that dinner at Simon the Pharisee's house? Where it's supposed to be a polite little dinner, a little, a little um, friendly interrogation. And then that woman comes in. And Jesus doesn't do anything about it. And she touches him. And she washes his feet. And, and she anoints him. And, and the Pharisee says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know the kind of woman who was touching him. Not only does he know the kind of woman who's touching him, but he knows what Simon is thinking about her and about him. And he, has, he says, Simon, I've got something to say to you. And he says, oh, tell me, teacher. He has no idea the can he just opened. He is the prophet. He, he, in fact, is the prophet, the prophet that Moses told about in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, where Moses said, the Lord will send to you a prophet like unto me from your brethren, and unto him you must listen. And the soul, and to him that does not listen, it will be required of him. You're going to be accountable if you don't hear from the one God sends. And that prophet. They asked John if he was the one. He says, no, I'm not. Here he is. He's not just a prophet. He is that prophet. He is the word of God incarnate, the word in flesh. And they put a blindfold on him. The futility of it all. What do you think that God does not see? This is where I was getting at with the kids. What is it that we think? Do we ever play with something, wander off here or there, thinking God must be busy somewhere else, God probably won't even notice, I can get away with this? Do you ever play that game with yourself? The blindfold is actually on you, not God. The one who thinks the one who thinks that God does not see is he himself blind. You see, God sees it all. And yet Jesus paid for it all. Never take one of those without the other. God knows all of your, your sin, that which is secret, hidden. He knows what goes on in my thoughts. And yet he loves me. He died for me. In verse 66 and following, they say, if you were the Christ, tell us plainly. But he says, you wouldn't believe it. And if I asked you, wouldn't, you wouldn't answer. Is Jesus just being harsh on them? How does he know that? Well, he knows all things. And he's been there before. Remember when he asked them the question about John the Baptist? Okay, you've asked me all these questions. Let me throw one back at you. Help me out here. Uh, John's baptism, was it from heaven or was it just from men? Was that of God or was that just a man's thing? They said, oh. Let's get our heads together here. And they think about it for a minute. Well, if we say it's just a man thing, then the, the people are going to be in an uproar because they believe John was from God. And if we say it was a God thing, then he's going to tell us, well, why didn't you believe him then? Why didn't you follow him? And so we don't know what to say. So we'll say, well, we don't know. We're still undecided. We haven't, we haven't come to a conclusion on that yet. They wouldn't answer. Jesus asked them a hard question in Matthew chapter 22. They, again, they challenged him. And so he says, well, you know, let me ask you a question. The, the, um, the, the Messiah, the Christ, whose son is he? Well, everybody knows that. He's the son of David. Okay, well, that's, that's a good point. So why does David say the Lord, addressing the Christ, or talking about the Christ, the Lord, 
God said to my Lord, Messiah, who is David's son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is all about the, the, the Messiah in Psalm 110. Why does David call his own son his Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, the Messiah. If Messiah is David's son, why does he call him Lord, Jesus said. And they said, we don't know. We'll have to circle back to that. Well, Jesus already knows, if, if I ask you, if we're going to enter into a dialogue here, if you really want to know, you, you don't. You're not going to enter into a dialogue. You don't really want to know. And yet he tells them more. Jesus, the Son of Man, shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God, meaning they will in fact see him sitting at God's right hand in judgment of them. That's the next time. After this runs its course, that's the next time they're going to see him. He's not going to appear to them post-resurrection until he appears to them when they appear before him in judgment on his throne. That's what he's telling them here. Are you then the Son of God, they say? You say I am. They reject him because of whom they believe him to be. What's going on here? If the, first of all, he has not blasphemed. He has not said, I'm the Son of God. You have, he said, you're going to see the Son of God. Or you're going to see the Son of Man, see him at the right hand of God. Are you the Son of God? Well, you say I am. He didn't say he was. He's putting it on them. Who do you say I am? Why are we here? Why have you brought me here unless you think that I am? So the, the, the issue here is what they're thinking here is he is, and we need to get rid of him. They're, they're fulfilling the parable. Remember the parable that Jesus told already that, that a man planted a vineyard, and then he goes away to a far country. And while he's away, there are others caring for the vineyard. And at the right time, he sends somebody to receive fruit from the vineyard. And that servant is beaten and cast out. He sends another one, he's beaten and cast out. Finally, the owner of the vineyard says, I will send my son, perhaps they will respect him. And they see the son coming, they see the heir coming. What do they do then? Oh, the sun's coming. We better listen. We better, we, better, we better do what we're supposed to do. Is that what he does? No. They say, ah, here's the sun. Here's the air. If we kill him, there'll be nobody else that they can give the vineyard to. They'll have to give it to us. We're going to get rid of the rightful heir so we can be the ones in charge. They rage against God's king because they want to rule for themselves. We will decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil. That's what they're stepping into here. You see, the issue for many people is not Jesus' identity, but its implications. The issue for many people is, is not, I wonder who Jesus is. They wrestle with the implications. If Jesus really is Lord, what does that mean for me? I don't want to admit who he is because I don't want to submit to what it means. That's what's going on here. Now for us, don't become trapped like they did in your own settled assumptions. Consider where you might be wrong. Jesus says, if I tell you, you will not believe. Our problem is not so much knowing. 
what is God's way. Our problem is not wanting to know God's way. I don't want to hear it because I don't want to do it. If I ask you, you will not answer. Will we let God's word challenge us in our own assumptions, in our own decision? We've already decided this way. I can think of a times in my life where I decided this is what I want to do. I don't want to do that. I'm afraid to do that. And I went my own way. And what I did is I wandered off on a detour for a while. And I found along the way that God is faithful to sort of bring me back around the circle and bring me back to that same decision point again. And what will I do with it this time around? Will I trust him or, will I, or, or will, I, will I go again out on a circle loop? My issue is not knowing, it's wanting to know God's way. And to let God's word, when I read my, my own devotional time, will I let it question me? Will I would it, let it challenge me? Will I wrestle with that, in, let's say in a discipleship group, in that here journaling model where I... I, I highlight a particular verse. This one stood out to me. I couldn't ignore it. And I know what it means, and yet there's an application here, but how will I respond to that application? Will I let God's word challenge me and have authority over my own will, or will I bend it to suit me? Finally, the Son of Man shall be seated. No matter what they say, no matter how they rage, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of power. God's will will be. You can have confidence in that. No matter what it looks like today, God's will will be whether we agree or not. God's will will be whether or not we agree. Now, some really isn't so much a matter of they don't want God's truth. They're, they're, they're actually rather indifferent to the whole things. They don't want to be bothered. That's actually, I think, where Pilate starts out here. Pilate would simply rather not be bothered with any of this. Pilate has his own agenda, he has his own ambitions, and this is just an obstacle in the way. Let's look at verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 23. The whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. They were sure of the charge, and the charge in their minds is blasphemy. Who does he think he is? And yet, listen to what they bring to Pilate. They begin to accuse him, saying, We have found this man, first of all, misleading or agitating our nation, stirring up subversion. And two, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, to pay taxes. Didn't Jesus say, Give to Caesar that which is Caesar's, and give to God that which is God's? That was his, his teaching just a couple of chapters ago. They bring that charge, and then saying that he himself is Christ, a king a royal claim in apparent rebellion against Caesar. And Pilate asked him, so, now, now what have they done here in ad asking these charges, these particular charges? What's the goal here? If they just, we have this man to bring before you because he says he's God. Pilate's saying, like, seriously? This is why you're bothering me? This is why you're waking me up early in the morning? Isn't this kind of your own religion thing? So they come up with some things that have to be politically sensitive to the Romans. Pilate can't ignore this. He's got to do something with this. Because there's subversion charges here. There's, there's the threat against the tax collecting going on here. There's a, there's a claim, perhaps a royal, a royal revolt against the throne. So Pilate's got to pay some attention. So he grabs hold of that last one. That seems to matter most to him. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, well... You are saying so. Then Pilate, that's the same kind of answer he gives before. You seem to be saying so. That's why I'm here. That's why they brought me here. And that's why you're questioning me. You seem to think so. 
Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, even from Galilee to this place. Aha, Pilate says, from Galilee, you say. Now, why did they bring up Galilee? They're perhaps trying to link Jesus into this revolt of some Galileans who, back in chapter 13, we had this little aside, we're not even sure why it's there, that, that um, Pilate has mingled the blood of, of some Galileans with their sacrifices there at, at the temple in Jerusalem. What's well, a big deal? Because apparently some Galileans did something that seemed very nationalistic and maybe rebelling in some way against Rome, and Pilate, with a very heavy hand, puts that down very aggressively. Pilate had a, had a reputation for doing things like that. That's why they thought this, this crucifixion of one, one rabble rebelling rabbi would, would, would be easy for Pilate. But he seems to be resisting. But they mention he's a Galilean. Perhaps they're trying to link Jesus into that earlier rebellion that Pilate had been so willing to squash. But Pilate goes a different direction with it. He's a, he's a Galilean, you say. Oh, well, let's send him to Herod. Let's make him Herod's responsibility. Because why? Pilate doesn't want to be bothered. Pilate wants to wash his hands of this whole affair. Pilate is happy to send him somewhere else. And so... When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was Galilean, and when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. Okay, let's talk about Herod and Pilate for a little bit. They're a little bit rivals themselves. Herod Antipas, one of the sons of Herod the Great, wants to be king of the Jews. He wanted, even, even at his father's death, he wanted, and his brother wanted, his half-brother, they both wanted to be king over the whole realm. Caesar ends up dividing up among several of them. And um, after a while, the one brother who's in charge of the area around Jerusalem, he does such a poor job that Caesar pulls him out quick and puts Roman governors instead. Herod Antipas is of the mind that you don't need Roman governors. I should be king in the place of my father. I should rule everything that he ruled. That's what Herod wants. And Pilate, like every, every Roman governor before him, is in the way of that. And so there's a little bit of animosity let me give you another spin on it. Herod had two, well, he had multiple palaces, but he had two very, very fine ones. One of them was in Jerusalem, larger than and slightly higher in elevation than the Temple Mount itself. The other palace is a Rome, on, a Rome in Galilee. It's a beautiful Roman city right on the coast of Galilee called Caesarea. He names it after Caesar. And if Herod the Great couldn't live in Rome, he was going to bring some of Rome into the, um, the world in which he lived. And he has this beautiful palace with a, with a freshwater pool in the middle of it sticking out into the ocean. It's a gorgeous palace and office layout. And both of those... Not only the palace in Jerusalem, which was the main palace of Herod the Great, a fortress palace, but Herod Antipas can't live there because that's where Pilate stays when he's in Jerusalem. And so Herod is relegated to a second palace down the hill, which was from an earlier dynasty before Herod the Great. Okay, But Caesarea, that's in Herod Antipas' own Galilee territory. Surely he could have that palace. No, because it's a very Roman lovely place, and Pilate likes it too. So Pilate takes the two fanciest digs that Antipas thinks he should have for himself. And that's an aside. It's all very material. But so is much of what's going on around us. 
It's all about what I think I should have for me and how that drives people to much evil. Well, so we get back to Herod here, and Herod gets a chance to be a player in this drama. He's been left on the sidelines. In fact, for most of Jesus' ministry, Herod's wanted to see him. Herod's wanted to witness. Herod's wanted to hear from him, and Jesus avoids him. Jesus, Jesus leaves him to the side and goes about his work. And now, even now, when he's sent by Pilate over to Herod, look what happens in verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. He'd long desired to see him because he'd heard about him, was hoping to see some signs, some miracles, put on a show. So he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. He's silent like a sheep before his shears, like a lamb led to the slaughter, echoing Isaiah 53. The chief priests and scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. They rage. And Herod with his soldiers treat him with contempt and mocked him. They array him in splendid clothing, and they sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other from that very day, for before this they had been at enmity. So these two who have very little in common, they are rivals against each other, but their animosity, their disdain for Jesus is the thing that joins them together. Their asserting of themselves over and above God is the thing that unites them together. And so, here's Herod. Herod wants to see a miracle. He wants a role in the drama. Jesus doesn't give him. Jesus doesn't answer him. He's, and so, Jesus is treated with contempt. He's mocked. A splendid robe is put on him. Neither Herod or Pilate are taking Jesus seriously. Now think about it for a moment. We, we normally think about the sufferings of Jesus and we think about the physical pain, the torment of crucifixion, which was terrible. It's beyond description. It's hard to do justice to that passage, as we'll talk about it next week, because we can't really do justice to the kind of human suffering that was endured there. But... The other piece of it that we often don't really feel the weight of because our culture doesn't experience honor and shame to the same dimensions as the Middle Eastern culture does. But the Lord of glory, the creator of all things, the one who holds all things together by the word of his power, the one who, speaking the word, could call 10,000 angels to his side, to do his bidding. The one who, by speaking the word, could, could take the life's breath from a man. And he would die instantly. Jesus is God incarnate. And yet, he allows himself to be mocked. To be ridiculed. To be shamed. And not even by people of reputation and standing, but by a pretender like Herod Antipas, himself a weak and corrupt leader. And yet Jesus endures that. He takes on this shame to bear our guilt in our place. Now let's consider what's happening here to the righteous Son of God. And one of the things this tells us that we should expect the world to be wrong and to do wrong. What is happening here is not right. This is not just. This is not, this is not um, the, 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 the rule of law as we should expect it. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent, and yet he puts politics over principle. The mob is not looking for justice, but to obtain an outcome at whatever cost. Herod is not serious. Herod's interested in his own 
his own um, entertainment. Don't be surprised when the world is corrupt. We should expect it to be corrupt. And when we see that, or when injustices are pointed out, that is an opportunity for us to say, yes, that's exactly what God says about humanity. We are corrupt. Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 3, the indictment against humanity, men and women, all of us, is true. And we see those passages lived out around us even today. Expect the world to be wrong and to do wrong. That tells you that God's word, what he has said about it, is true. Sometimes it seems there's no justice at all. As we continue the story, now he's back before Pilate again in verse 13. Pilate then calls the chief priests and the rulers of the people. He summons them back together because he's going to announce his verdict. And this should end it. This should be the, the, this is the final answer. There's nothing to be done from here. And he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, in your presence, I've examined him. Behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of the charges that you brought. He is not guilty of being an agitating subversive. He is not guilty of forbidding people to pay taxes. He is not guilty as a royal rival to Rome. If he imagines some kingdom, it's a different kind of kingdom. And so I find no guilt in him of any of these charges that you have brought against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Isn't that interesting? I find no guilt in him, neither did Herod. What he has just fulfilled there is the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 19. By the word of two or three witnesses, here the two legal authorities from Galilee and Judea, have both declared he is not guilty. Okay, the law of Moses has been fulfilled. He is innocent. And yet he seeks a political compromise. He is innocent, but I will punish him and release him. Pilate is no just ruler. Pilate would brutalize an innocent man in order to obtain a political victory. Pilate tries to now force a choice on them. He says, I'm going to release him. The way I'm going to release him is something called the Passover pardon. In the Passover pardon, at the Feast of Passover, one, one prisoner that Rome holds is released to the people. And Pilate's going to give them two choices. And he seeks to put them into a corner where there's no choice that they can make but the one he wants them to make. Because he gives them two choices. One of them is this apparently harmless rabbi who Pilate may be favoring simply because he seems to so easily get under the skin of the Jewish leadership. And Pilate maybe likes that. And the other choice he gives them is a clearly known, convicted, murderous, seditionist rebel named Barabbas, who has been guilty of insurrection, who has led a revolt in which people died, maybe a Roman official. And so the the choice that's being set before them is, are you going to choose this seemingly harmless rabbi who you have some theological offense against, or are you going to choose a man who is clearly the enemy of Rome? Who are you going to side with, one of your rabbis or the enemy of Rome? You see how Pilate's again kind of turned the tables on them. 
There's no way that they would choose publicly before everybody to choose an enemy of Rome and align themselves with that, would they? That's exactly what they do. They cry out together in verse 18, Away with this man! Give us Barabbas! So Pilate addresses them once more, desiring to release Jesus. And they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time, why? What evil has he done? I find in him no guilt deserving of death. I will punish and release him. Won't that be enough? But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. A third time, three times, I find no guilt in him. Yet with loud cries they demanded. And what does Pilate do? He surrenders. Pilate surrenders his own authority in yielding to the mob. This Roman ruler who should stand for the rule of law and predictability and stability, that's what Rome wants. He releases an insurrectionist and he delivers Jesus over to their will. Jesus will be murdered in the place of a murderer. Luke is very explicit about that. And that's, I think it's because Paul is quite explicit in his theology and his letters and so in his preaching and teaching around the Mediterranean and Luke is, who is, is following Paul's lead. The Gospel of Luke is written to, for Paul's audience and so Luke is giving an example out of Jesus' death for us of this substitutionary nature of his death. That Jesus clearly here the innocent one is murdered for the murderer. His substitutionary death in the place of the guilty is clear. Now, in the midst of all this, don't let what's wrong. This is not a right thing that's happening here. This is a grave injustice that's happening here. And don't let what's wrong convince you that, A, God is not in control or that God does not care. Because sometimes those doubts will will get into our head or into our heart, won't they? Sometimes it seems the kind of stuff that's going on around us that either God doesn't care or God, God is not in control. God is not able to do anything about it. The only one ex exercising self-control in all of this is Jesus. He is not moved by fear or by rage, or by deprivation, or humiliation. But Jesus is standing resolute in the Father's will. Pilate, on the other hand, is being bullied and pushed all over the show. Herod has no control of the situation. The circumstances for Pilate are spiraling, but Jesus is in control. God is in control here. God is fulfilling, in fact, according to Isaiah 53, 800-year-old details of a plan that has been written since before the foundation of the world. God is in control, and Jesus is wholeheartedly submitted to the will of his Father and is making it happen. Don't think that God is ambivalent. That God doesn't care. God so loved the world that he allows even this to happen. Even this shame, even this torment, even this torture, this grave injustice. And we lose sight of some of those other aspects. We look at this physical suffering, but what about the injustice that is played out here that God allows to play out against himself? 
God, who is just, allows injustice for our sake. God allows the just requirement for our sin, what I mean by that, to be put on Jesus instead of on us. Justice is fulfilled in Jesus' death for us. However, God allows Herods and Pilots and the mob to seemingly have their way because God so loved the world that he sent his son. This does not indicate that God doesn't care. This shows how much he cares. This how deep his love for us, for our salvation. It is for the joy set before Jesus to bring, bring many redeemed to glory that he endured the cross even while despising its shame. The most important issue in this chapter, group after group, a scene by scene, who do you say that he is? What will you do with Jesus? Sadly, the main players in this chapter and many around us today, they don't want to face that question. The mob's leaders are trying to avoid the question. They're trying to just get rid of Jesus. Just get him out of Jerusalem, get him out of Judea, get him out of Galilee, get him out of Get him off the earth. Just get him away and we'll be fine. That's their perspective. They think by getting rid of Jesus, they will protect and preserve their own positions, their own place. But you know what's going to happen? After rejecting Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, within 40 years, there will not be one priest, one Pharisee, one Jewish person left in Jerusalem. They will all be gone, most of them killed, by the very same Romans that they handed Jesus over to. Wow. Herod doesn't care anything about Jesus unless Jesus would provide some spiritual spectacle to indulge him. God's king has nothing to say to this proud pretender. And today, we find the same kind of thing. People want spirituality. They want something from God, but they want it on their terms for their benefit or for their entertainment. Give me a spiritual experience and you'll have my interest. Give me some spiritual benefit, seemingly, that I can, I can touch and feel and enjoy, and I'm in. Lead me in a way of suffering that shows the depth of God's love, and I'm not so interested. Herod's typical of many around us, not merely in our age, but throughout the ages. We shouldn't be surprised at that. Pilate, he just wants to survive this current assignment. Being posted as the governor of Judea was not a plum assignment. It was not like ambassadorship to the UK or France or something like this. This is a much more difficult assignment, less prestigious. But if he can succeed here in this difficult role, perhaps he can further advance his position his prestige, even his possessions. Pilate really doesn't want to be bothered by Jesus. He doesn't want this to, to sidetrack his ambitions. And yet he's not willing to decide for himself. And because he's not willing to decide for himself, the crowd, the mob around him ends up deciding for him. There's something for us to learn there. If we will not decide ourselves, the crowd around us will decide for us. Pilate is not willing to decide for himself, and as a result, his rejection of Jesus is, in fact, all that Pilate is known for. Through history, when you think of Pontius Pilate, you think, oh, yes, he's the one that rejected Jesus and handed him over to be crucified. He didn't even really want to, and yet he did. 
Pilate was not in charge. In fact, historians report that Pontius Pilate himself will be on trial before Caesar in just three years' time. You know what he's on trial before Caesar for? For brutally, unjustly executing Samaritans in their very real rebellion against Roman authority. And he executes them without proper processes and procedures, and Caesar judges against him and orders him to take his own life. He who was responsible for the death of the Messiah takes his own life at Caesar's orders. Who do you say that he is? Is Jesus a victim here? Of circumstances spinning out of control? Or is he the sovereign son of God determined to pay what it takes for your and my salvation? Who do we say that he is? Is he Christ? Is he the King? Is he the Lord of Lords? Is he the Son of God? And if so, you can trust him and the Father as he shows us. He shows us a way in the midst of opposition, in the midst of troubles, in the midst of rejection. He shows us how to steadfastly live out God's truth in an oppositional age. In 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 20, If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For it, to this you have been called. Here it is. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so you, you may follow in his steps. When we think of to know and follow Jesus, we don't simply mean to do the things that are good, to do the things that are right, to do the things that, everyone, that others around you might look up to and admire. We're talking about doing what is good and right in the eyes of God, even though people would rage against you, to follow in his steps in his suffering. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Oh my, he could have. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus himself bore our sins in his own body in the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but we have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. You see, there's been plenty of time for us wandering, doing our own will, thinking what will be to our own advantage, doing what we believe, if God's not paying attention, we could get away with. But now we will follow him. In the midst of opposition, we will not strike back. We will still seek to extend God's salvation even as Jesus modeled for us. How? Because we can entrust ourselves to him who does judge justly. There is one. There is one good and right judge over all the earth. No matter what anybody else decides, I can trust myself to him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do trust ourselves to you. 
Father, we have to admit that at times we wonder. At times our confidence can be shaken by the events around us, by circumstances, by, Lord, the antagonism and opposition that we experience. But Father, would you guard our hearts? Ensure that whatever offense people take, they don't take offense because of me and my own opinions, but they take offense at Jesus and that they might see something of him in me. Father, help us to follow in his ways, even when it means suffering for that which is right, even when it means suffering for that which is good, even when others around us will not applaud or appreciate that which we stand for. But Father, would you help us to do it graciously, not reviling in return, not seeking to threaten or attack back, when we are attacked. But Lord, help us to trust ourselves to you and your vindication, ultimately in your kingdom. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.